0: What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by Peer Run Support Communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is online at kboo.fm slash madnessradio. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today my guest is Sharna Ulfman. She's a professor of developmental and clinical psychology at Point Park University in Pittsburgh and a psychologist in private practice. Uh, She is editor of the Childhood in America book series and recently edited the new book, Drugging Our Children, How Profiteers Are Pushing Antipsychotics on Our Youngest and What We Can Do to Stop It. So welcome to Madness Radio, Sharna Ulfman.
1: I am so glad to be here.
0: Yeah, well, thank you for coming. It's a, it's a really, really important topic because as we're going to be getting into on the show, the use of dangerous antipsychotics is, is climbing among children, even kids as young as first and second graders and even into kindergarten and younger. And it's something that is really needs to be looked at more carefully. And this is something you've done with your work and your new book, Drugging Our Children. Tell us about how you got alerted to the issue of child drugging. You're a mother yourself, is that right?
1: Yes, I am. I have two teenagers, but I think that I really started to get deeply interested in the issue when my oldest child, who's now 18, was ready to enter kindergarten. And I discovered that you know various kindergartens had entrance exams, and it, it seemed like such a strange Thing to me that there was, you know, such a high level of academic expectation for children who were only four years old, that there was an expectation that they might already be reading and writing. And I also started to sort of tune into the fact that academic pressures were really developmentally inappropriate for kindergarten kids. And that so many of them were being placed on stimulant medication. And it started to occur to me that there was a correlation between the two events that kids were being drugged so that they could cope with developmentally inappropriate school environments. And that's when I really started to tune into the issue of the extent to which kids were being placed on psychiatric medications and some of the environmental and cultural factors that have led to the inappropriate drugging of children.
0: So that's really interesting. You're saying that there is both a pressure to succeed academically that reaches all the way down into kindergarten, and also you're saying that there's an unreasonable expectation for children to do things that don't fit with their developmental needs at that age, and that's when the medications come in. Don't the doctors say that, well, look, this person, this child has ADHD, they have a disease, they have a disorder, they have a behavioral problem, that's why they need the medication? But you're challenging that view.
1: Yes, that is true. I think that most of the reasons that kids are medicated these days, the diagnostic categories that are used, that there's really not a lot of science behind them you gave the example of ADHD. If you look at the criteria for ADHD, that a child is more impulsive than the average, that a child has more difficulty paying attention than the average. I do this all the time with my undergraduate students. I say, well, what are, name 10 reasons as to why a child might be impulsive. Name 10 reasons as to why a child might have difficulty paying attention. These are such generic symptoms and so it becomes difficult to really convincingly suggest that something like ADHD is a bona fide disease in the way that diabetes is a disease. and there really are no there are no blood tests, there are no biochemical markers there are no brain markers for what we call ADHD. And so I think that we as a culture, have become convinced that when children are suffering, when they are showing emotional distress, when they are showing behavioral issues, that they probably have some type of genetically determined brain disorder, but there really isn't a lot of science to back that up. I also want to add that I feel as though we have taken children's emotions, we have transformed human emotion into symptomatology. So when a child is sad, we say that they're depressed. When a child is elated, we say that they're manic. When a child is in a rage, we say that they're manic. Um, When a child is frightened, we say that they're anxious. And we have stopped, in a sense, listening to the powerful communications that children are offering us and instead saying, oh, maybe she's bipolar, maybe she's depressed, maybe she's anxious, maybe she has poor impulsivity. And I think that that's very highly problematic. And when children's emotions Mm -hmm. are very, very intense, my own experience from my clinical work is that generally speaking, there is a compelling reason for it, that maybe there is abuse or maybe there is a child struggling to cope in an environment that is not a developmentally appropriate environment. So we really have kind of narrowed our understanding or our way of thinking about children's suffering, children's emotional suffering, and as a result, we're kind of drugging their emotions into silence, but we're not really looking at the root cause of they 're suffering
0: so actually, these behaviors that children have are meaningful and can be understood that there 's some kind of communication you describe them as as communication, and there 's no effort to really say what is being communicated by this behavior, What is the larger context that the child is going through and then, in the case of of ADHD, children are put on stimulants now. How does that work? Because what I think a lot of parents see and a lot of teachers see is that a child who is so-called acting out, who's very disruptive, is on this stimulant, and then now they're able to focus. Now they're able to uh, go along and be like the other children. So how exactly Mm -hmm. does that work? Because I think that that reinforces the idea that a lot of parents and teachers have that, yes, indeed, this is some kind of biochemical problem with the child that's being corrected by the drug.
1: It used to be believed, you know, about a decade ago that um, because one would assume that a stimulant would rev a child up rather than calm them down, that there was this paradoxical effect and it sort of proved that the child had some type of biochemical disorder because of the way they were responding to the drug. Mm -hmm. But that has been completely disproven. The best way to think about how a stimulant makes you feel is to think about a stimulant that most of us take every day, like caffeine. So, you know, you get up in the morning and you kind of feel groggy and focused and you have your cup of coffee and suddenly it kind of wakes you up and it focuses you. On the other hand, if you have two or three cups of coffee, then you might start to get jittery and, and kind of overstimulated. Mm-hmm. So the right amount of a stimulant medication is going to make you focus. And what research has shown is that anyone who takes stimulant medication will focus better, anyone, whether or not they have been diagnosed with ADHD. It has nothing to do with an underlying chemical imbalance. In the same way that you take caffeine, you focus better. It doesn't mean that you have a caffeine deficit. But the other thing that is important to know is that research has not found any long-term benefit to use of stimulant medication. The the um, outcomes for children who are diagnosed with ADHD who stay on stimulant medication in the long term are not better and sometimes worse than the outcomes for children who do not take stimulant medication long term, you know, in terms of academic performance, in terms of uh, emotional adjustment later in life. That would be really surprising
0: for a lot of people to learn because often they feel like, well, if if the child isn't on the medication. They're going to fall behind. They're going to get worse. Their emotional problems are going to continue to deteriorate. And actually, you're saying that the long-term studies don't show that.
1: The long-term studies do not support benefits um, for using stimulant medication. I think another really, really significant issue, and it's a bit of a placebo effect for children as well as for parents and for teachers, and that is that If a psychiatrist or a pediatrician labels a child as ADHD, then you are now understanding that my child or my student cannot pay attention because they have a brain disorder. So I have no expectations that this child will eventually Mm. acquire the capacity to pay attention unless they're on a medication because by definition, they have a disease that prevents them from controlling their impulses or prevents them from paying attention.
0: So the identity Mm -hmm. of the child starts to change. The whole set of expectations of who they are is reformed around this diseased behavioral disordered identity.
1: Exactly. And honestly, if someone told me that I had a brain disorder that prevented me from controlling my impulses, I would probably have you know, would be much less likely to rein in my impulses because I might start to believe that I don't it's not mm-hmm, mm-hmm. possible for me to do so.
0: Exactly. And this is a problem that is throughout psychiatry is that the self fulfilling prophecy, the expectation effect. I mean, this is something that I know personally from my own experience being diagnosed with schizophrenia it does start to create this internalized even expectation of who you are and the expectation right. of the people the people around you. Sharon, I wanna move on from the ADHD drugs but just give us also give us a sense of what are some of the risks that that go along with giving a kid Adderall or, or Ritalin when they are diagnosed with ADHD
1: I want to go back just mm-hmm. a brief step and mm-hmm. I want to say because you know some parents might be listening and they might say, well, that's very easy for you to say what you're saying, but you haven't lived in a household with my kid. My kid is really out of control, and mm-hmm. it's just been a nightmare. And there are kids like that. And so I just, I also just want to briefly address that, and not sort of, right. to kind of put it out there that it's all a myth, and your, you know, your kids are not struggling, and if they are, it's probably because of bad parenting or bad schooling. I I do want to point out that there are other biological factors other than um, faulty brain chemistry or faulty genes that might lead a child to be out of control. I mean, there might be trauma of some sort in the child's background. There might be environmental exposure to environmental toxins that are impacting the brain. So there may be real Issues, food allergies, there are all kinds of issues and the problem is it's all of the issues that are more likely to lead, to, you know, to, to sort of where, where there might be sort of a biological trail are not mm-hmm. being addressed because we're, we're sort of focused on this chemical imbalance mm-hmm. issue. And so I just wanted to put it out there that sometimes kids who are just high energy kids in the wrong environment in the wrong time with the wrong teacher get mislabeled. Some kids really are struggling, but it's not always useful to give them that label because it actually prevents us from following a better direction in terms of treatment that might Mm -hmm. be about eliminating food colorings and food additives and looking at what other very real issues might be going on that are making this child a little bit out of control. Mm-hmm.
0: And also I think it's important to mention that when we're talking about the parenting environment being difficult for the child, sometimes it's just a bad match between the child's needs and the parent's um, style. It might be that there's stress in the family. There might be communication problems in the family between the parents or if there's one parent there might be difficulty with um, stress from work or the, the availability of the parent to be there and be supportive. So it's not just a question of there's is there child abuse or is there not child abuse. Right. I think often there are just family problems that need to be addressed that the child is expressing and picking up and the child is often sort of acting as an alarm, saying, hey, look, let's try and deal with these family issues that all of us need help. It's not just me, the child, who is the problem here. It's the whole family. And that's right. where I think our society has really has really failed to support parents in that way.
1: I couldn't agree more. I think it is a very difficult time to be a parent right now. I think, you know, if you think, what is the meaning of culture? What is a culture? And I like to think that a culture is, you know, all of the values that we share, that we choose, we create a culture. Culture isn't some physical entity that we have no control over. We collectively choose to participate in a particular society that has certain shared values. But I think that right now, what we call culture in a certain sense has been co-opted by Corporate values, you know, the, the culture in, in a sense is being commercialized and the way in which kids are growing up are not really representative of the values that parents want to mm. um, instill in them. So an example would be commercialized media is a really huge problem. So, so the average child in the US is listening to 40 hours a week of commercialized media and the messages that they're getting about what parents are like, about what values they should, that they should adopt are very different from the kinds of values and the kinds of messages that parents want mm-hmm. to give them. And so instead of working to, uh, you know, the, the wider culture, wider society working to support parents in a certain sense, parents are kind of fighting the wider culture. Mm-hmm. In more practical ways, the U.S. has the weakest... Policies in support of family life. So, for example, we do not guarantee a maternity leave. If a woman is working for a company with fewer than fifty employees, her employer does not have to give her a single day of maternity leave. And if she, even if she happens to be working for a Company that has that has the 50 or more employees, there thereby requiring um, the employer to give her maternity leave. It's not paid maternity leave, so a lot of women simply can't afford to take more than a couple of weeks. That's a very very stressful way to begin a parenting relationship. It's incredibly stressful for the parents. It's incredibly stressful for a child to have to go into perhaps a daycare, an institutional setting when they're 2 or 3 or 4 weeks old.
0: And so you're suggesting that all these stresses on parents from the economic context show up as problems with childhood behavior and childhood development.
1: Yeah, I think that when we don't we don't support parents through mm-hmm. adequate mm-hmm. Uh, minimum wage, through adequate maternity leave, through subsidized systems of Uh, and regulated systems of daycare, when we don't support their efforts to raise children, we're giving them, in a certain sense, an impossible task. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then when they get really stressed out and the kids get really stressed out, we say, oh, wow, you know, this kid has a brain disorder, let's put them on a medication. So I think Mm -hmm. that that is a route that is unfortunately a common one.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, corporate uh, capitalism tends to respond to the problems that it creates in society by marketing products to the people who are suffering from those problems. Exactly. So, exactly. so and we've been talking about the broader issue of drugging and children, but we've been focusing more on ADHD diagnosis and Ritalin and Adderall and the stimulant prescriptions. Bring us up to date on the history because that has kind of grown and changed and now the big concern is the the explosion of antipsychotic prescriptions.
1: Right. So in the 70s, pharmaceutical companies were pushing the stimulant medications and and that also, well, it was just sort of deemed to be a cost-effective way to deliver psychiatric care to kids. In the late 80s and 90s, partly probably because some of the stimulant medications were going off patent and so the pharmaceutical industry needed to kind of create new Primary uh, diagnostic categories and push n- another set of drugs on kids. The SSRI antidepressants became the drug mm-hmm. du jour for children,
0: like uh, Prozac um, and
1: Paxil. Right, uh, all the exactly.
0: And the claim, the um, claim was that well, these are more cost-effective than providing therapy or family therapy or parenting classes or any kind of support, but actually it ends up being more expensive in the long term.
1: Well, it's more expensive if it doesn't work. Ultimately, if it doesn't work and the child is left with emotional needs that are not addressed, then it's extremely expensive in that way. Certainly, it becomes a lifelong dependency. It's not cost-effective in any sense of the word. Um, The antidepressants became the drug du jour. Uh, Somewhere around the mid-1990s, when the new classes of antipsychotics were really, really being pushed because the old classes of antipsychotics were going off patent and were no longer profitable. So these are, um, these are the
0: drugs like Geodon and Risperdal and Abilify?
1: Correct. Um, so these are sometimes called the, the atypical antipsychotics or the second generation antipsychotics. Now these were drugs that were originally designed to treat adult schizophrenics, but that's a very small market. And so the drug companies were looking to expand that market mm. and along came uh, one of the most powerful thought le- leaders in child psychiatry, a man named Joseph Biederman, who as we discovered just a couple of years ago, was taking a considerable amount of money from various pharmaceutical companies. He started to push the diagnosis of bipolar disorder. And he made the claim that the reason that we didn't recognize that a significant number of children suffer from bipolar disorder is that we assume that the signs and symptoms of bipolar disorder in children would be the same as the signs and symptoms of bipolar disorder, bipolar disorder in adults. But that in fact, children who are frequently irritable children who are overly aggressive, children who have really poor impulse control are, in fact, probably bipolar. Children who we used to categorize as having conduct disorder were actually misdiagnosed and really have bipolar disorder. And he really, the, the, the research on which he was basing these claims is very, very flimsy. Be, but because he he you know he's a Harvard psychiatrist, he was a very, very high profile psychiatrist and continues. you know, and and still today, despite the fact that we've discovered that um he was not admitting to the fact that he was taking drug company money, he continues to have a very high profile within child psychiatry. But because of the way in which he reconceptualized and pushed, The diagnosis of bipolar disorder, along with that, was the claim that the best way to treat so-called pediatric bipolar disorder was through a combination of antipsychotic and anticonvulsant medication. And the anticonvulsant medication sort of was reframed as a mood stabilizer. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Because originally that medication was used for seizure disorders and epilepsy. Correct.
1: Correct. And suddenly, this seizure, anti-seizure medication somehow got transformed into, a mood, uh, into mood stabilizers. But it, what's important to know about Joseph Biederman is that uh, in 2009, it was discovered through an investigation that was launched by Senator Charles Grassley mm-hmm. that he had accepted over $1.5 million from a variety of drug companies And that he was given two million dollars by Johnson & Johnson to create the Johnson & Johnson Center for Pediatric Psychopathology at the Harvard affiliated Massachusetts General Hospital. And even worse, email correspondence was uncovered in which he Mm -hmm. actually guaranteed Johnson & Johnson that he would, that his research results would support their Hmm. economic interests through the sale of Risperidol to kids with bipolar disorder and that he would create screening tests for children and through continuing education, um, medical courses, he would teach psychiatrists and pediatricians how to recognize these many, many Hundreds of thousands of undiagnosed children, some you know as young as preschool age, mm-hmm. who allegedly had a bipolar disorder.
0: And subsequently, to him, sort of leading this research charge to claim that there is pediatric bipolar and epidemic numbers, which was fueled by his taking money from the pharmaceutical companies. That's when the diagnosis of bipolar disorder just skyrocketed in the United States. It did. States.
1: It did. There was a An unbelievable an unprecedented 40-fold increase in the number of children diagnosed with bipolar disorder between uh, 1994
0: and 2003. So that's a 4,000% increase. That's a dramatic marketing impact, really. It's promoting a brand. The brand of bipolar was spread by corporate funding through the culture, and then as a result you have this market created and all these exactly. adults and children are now on bipolar medication that they wouldn't that have That is
1: correct. And the consequence of that is that in the 2000s there has been in the early like you know say between 2001 and 2007 there was a doubling of the number of uh, children on antipsychotic medication and a quadrupling of the number of kids who received Medicaid who are now taking antipsychotic medication and the numbers are even higher for kids who are cared for by the state whether they are imprisoned or in psychiatric facilities or foster care as many as fifty percent of children in foster care on any given day are taking um, antipsychotics and it gets worse because a majority of kids who are on antipsychotics are on what is called a polypharmacy regimen, which means that they are on multiple meds. And so the way it usually works is a child is somewhat troublesome or troubling or struggling in some way. And so maybe the doctor starts with a stimulant and that doesn't do anything. And so they add to the stimulant an antidepressant. And that doesn't do it, do anything. And then they sort of move up to the antipsychotics and to perhaps a mood stable, they throw a mood stabilizer in and that doesn't do anything. And so then they start to up the dosages or they start to play with different combinations of uh, these various classes of drugs.
0: If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio, and we're speaking with Professor Sharna Ulfman. Uh, She's Professor of Developmental and Clinical Psychology at Point Park University in Pittsburgh and a psychologist in private practice. She's the editor of the Childhood in America book series, and she recently edited the new book, Drugging Our Children, How Profiteers Are Pushing Antipsychotics on Our Youngest and What We Can Do to Stop It.
1: And then it gets worse than that because... Whereas in recent years there has been FDA approval for the use of antipsychotics to treat pediatric bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and aggression in connection with autism even though the, you know, the research is, was funded by drug companies and the FDA, uh, the, the research that led to FDA approval is questionable in and of itself but what's even worse is that today A majority of children who are prescribed antipsychotics have been prescribed them for what are called off-label uses of the medication. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So kids today are being given um, antipsychotics for ADHD, for anger management, for impulsivity, for insomnia, for post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessive-compulsive symptoms, and eating disorders. And these are not FDA-approved symptoms or diagnostic categories for the use of of antipsychotics. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's illegal to bill Medicaid for prescriptions of medications that are being used for for, uh, indications that are not FDA-approved. It's just really, really gotten quite out of control.
0: And so what are some of the implications in terms of the effects of these medications on the people who are taking them?
1: They're frightening medications, especially for children, some of whom are as young as three and four years of age, to be given medications for which there is no research support that are so profoundly damaging to um, developing brains and bodies. And I just, I just want to throw in before I start to talk about what the mm-hmm. effects of these drugs are that mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of uh, your listeners have come across ad campaigns that the antipsychotics are now the add-on drug for depression so if your antidepressant isn't working why not top it up with an antipsychotic if if your if your depression is kind of resistant to the antidepressants which is just so beyond Mm -hmm. unbelievable because if your antidepressant is working, maybe you should go off the antidepressant and and try another route altogether rather than add on another drug. Mm -hmm. But the most cynical way of understanding that is that the SSRI antidepressants, a number of them are going off patent and the drug companies are looking to slowly transition their users of the antidepressants to another class of drugs that are more profitable for them. And so they're positioning the antipsychotics to now treat the depression market as well. Mm-hmm. We understand that the antipsychotics are being so heavily pushed and that there's just no ethics. It's just shocking, mm-hmm. especially when they're being pushed on kids. Mm-hmm. And I, I would like to share some of the, you know, the effects of the antipsychotics, especially on children whose brains and bodies are still developing. And there are just so many. And one of the reasons is that the older class of antipsychotics targeted the dopamine system. They targeted the neurotransmitter dopamine and they, they decreased the amount of dopamine available in the brain. But the new antipsychotics target multiple chemicals. And as a result, the impact of these drugs, which were marketed as more specific drugs, they're, they're, they're the opposite of, that, uh, opposite of that. They're sort of like a scattershot effect mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because so many different aspects of neurotransmission are impacted at once. And so we see with long-term use that There are motor problems such as um, akathisia, which is like an inner agitation that's associated with a very high rate of suicide. Tardive dyskinesia, uh, involuntary rhythmic movements, um, which can become permanent with long-term use. Um,
0: Which is a sign of of neurological damage. It's a a sign that there's there's actually brain damage happening to the person that they start to develop, uh, tardive dyskinesia.
1: That is correct. And just, just sort of staying on that note, long-term use of, you know, the, the older antipsychotics and the, the newer antipsychotics are associated with shrinkage of brain mm-hmm. tissue, that right. there's just less brain volume the longer that an adult remains mm-hmm. on an antipsychotic. And so
0: mm-hmm.
1: we can only imagine what the impact um, on a child who may have been put in an antipsychotic, you know, at school age or younger, Mm -hmm. um, you know, what that impact on brain development uh, might be.
0: And we should really remember that that's how the drugs were marketed. They were marketed as, hey, we've recognized that the older drugs have all these terrible side effects. Now there's this new class. We're actually going to call them the atypicals, the different class, because it doesn't have the side effects. They work better. It's not as harmful to people. And then actually that has just completely fallen apart. It was a marketing Campaign. Right. In fact, I think the British um, Medical Journal, which is sort of the, one of the gold standard academic journals, said, "Look, there's no evidence that the newer antipsychotic drugs are any better, any more effective, or any less dangerous than the older Correct.
1: ones." Correct. And we we could make the case that they're more dangerous because they impact the brain in a, in a much broader way; that they're less specific, um, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that we may discover that they're they're certainly not safer. And they're probably more dangerous.
0: And what would you just say to someone who's listening, who is saying, "Well, look, I take antipsychotic drugs. I want to vilify mm-hmm. this help to me. I'm right. now—it's the one right. drug I've discovered that works for me. And I, right. I've definitely have met many people. I work with many people. And my own mm-hmm. view is that, you know, to really respect where people are at. And of course, yes, of course, many people rely on medications and feel that like right. they are helpful to them. But it's a question of being informed about Absolutely. the risks and about the dangers Absolutely. and about how the drugs work and don't work and especially right. being informed about the placebo effect because so much of right. it is the relationship you have with your prescriber the attitude that you have to your drug the whole expectations and belief system around can be incredibly powerful in shaping how the drug affects and the placebo effect so you're not right. you're not taking an anti medication position this is more about let's be honest about what the medication is. Exactly. Do.
1: Exactly. That that I, I appreciate that you have clarified. I'm not taking an anti medication position. Well, yes and no. Mm-hmm. I would say that where children are concerned, because they're in a very different position from adults, adults have the possibility of doing their research, of becoming informed and of making a choice. Children are rarely in a position to do that. Actually. And
0: they're legally, actually, the custody of their of their parents, so the parents have right. a substituted decision-making on behalf of the child. So legally, right. they can't go against their parents' decisions for medical right. treatment.
1: Right. So I would argue that for children, because there is zero research support in favor of antipsychotic use with children, and at the same time there is significant research that demonstrates that there is so much harm done that by the time the child is in a position to um, be able to make decisions for themselves, significant harm may have already taken place. So I I would argue that where children are concerned, I would actually support a a, a moratorium of... Mm-hmm. use of antipsychotics for children, because there just isn't the research to support that.
0: Let's just get away from drugging right. children, because there it's right. really clear that alternatives need to be provided for children, and they don't have the choice, and the research is not there, and there's overwhelming evidence of damage.
1: I also want to comment that, you know, I'm in an interesting position because I'm a psychologist and so I don't have the mandate to prescribe, but I frequently assess children who have already been prescribed a medication, who are already taking medication, and I frequently have an opportunity to speak to their parents and I say, well, what do you know about this drug? What did your child's pediatrician or psychiatrist tell you about Mm -hmm, this drug? mm -hmm. Are you aware of the side effects? Are you aware of the withdrawal effects? And more often than not, they have not been properly informed. And had they been, they may have made a different choice on behalf of their child. Or their child may have protested more loudly had, you know, an older child been party to that conversation. So I think that that's just significant, significant malpractice on the part of any medical doctor who does not fully inform a parent and even a child Mm -hmm. of the the risks or the side effects so that, that the family can collectively make a decision about whether mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. the right treatment choice exactly. for and, their and, child.
0: And also informing them about what's known and not known about the diagnosis because I think a lot of parents yeah. are concerned that, well, my daughter has schizophrenia, my son has ADHD. We don't want to leave this right. untreated. We are exactly. told that yeah. if it's untreated, it's going to get worse and that it's a medical condition, it's a biological, right. chemical genetic problem that must be treated with medication or else I'm not a good parent. I think a lot right. of parents have been have told that I've gotten that impression. And what I'm seeing, though, in the culture is that, you know, the pharmaceutical marketing has really almost reached a saturation point. And a lot of people are recognizing that, look, I've been going down the medication road for me or for my child for years now, and it's actually hasn't gotten better. Things have gotten Mm -hmm. worse. Now I'm interested in alternatives. Now I'm interested in coming off medications or finding some other alternative for, um, for the problem. And it's not to say that the problems aren't real. They're, they're very real and they're often very severe and very serious, but there are alternatives. And let's talk about Mm -hmm. some of the things that parents can do if they have a child that they are concerned about their behavior or their impulsivity or their disruption or their performance in school or problems um, with what's happening with the kid's emotional life. What are some of the things, because your book does talk a lot about research-based, effective Mm -hmm. alternatives to Mm -hmm. drugging children?
1: Right. Well, I... I I do want to just sort of make a a brief caveat. Let's say um, your child has is on one of these drug cocktails, or they're taking an antipsychotic, and you're you're thinking, "Wow, I didn't realize that there was, you know, all this research about harms. I have not been informed." And beyond that, my child's condition seems to be worsening or no better. And why should I place my child at risk if if they're not improving or Mm -hmm. they seem to be deteriorating in their behavior and their their emotional life? Um, it's very dangerous um, to just sort of throw out the bottle of pills mm-hmm. because your child will go through withdrawal and so even though you may have made a decision to take your child off of the medication it is of vital importance that the weaning process take place under medical supervision and in a very graduated way because sometimes what happens is the child is withdrawn from the uh, medication and suddenly their you know emotions are all over the place and they're more impulsive mm-hmm. or they're having nightmares and the parent says, wow, they really needed this they drug really in the need first the place. They, they, um, the idea is right. that,
0: well, the illness has come back rather than seeing mm-hmm. it as a right. drug Right, effect. rather than
1: seeing as a withdrawal effect. So I just mm-hmm. wanted to kind of throw that out there.
0: That's yeah. very important, and that's actually one of the things that motivated me and other people to develop the harm reduction guide to coming off psychiatric drugs, which we've talked about quite a bit. Uh-huh. on Madness Radio, which is a free uh-huh. free guide that people can download that has a lot of basic wonderful? information for you mm-hmm. and your prescriber to learn about this process of coming right. off meds, because as you say, their withdrawal effects can be really serious, and so just throwing your medications away is really not advisable mm-hmm. and can create all kinds of problems.
1: So the answer is, well, what are the solutions? And it's complicated, because I would say that the reason that we're seeing a rise in children's emotional issues are really a combination of perhaps what's happening in family life, but also what's happening in the wider culture. So we need to look at our educational system and the focus that we've given to standardized testing, which is a, a kind of a dehumanizing approach to education. It's sort of like, let's just download this information and let's train kids to sort of spew up the facts. You know, without really engaging them in developmentally appropriate and meaningful uh, learning experience. So we need to look at our system of education. We need to look at the ways in which we fail, as we talked about earlier, the ways in which we fail to support families. We need to provide maternity leave. We need to provide child sick leave. We need to increase the minimum wage so that parents don't need to work two shifts, so that the second shift is... The shift is home with the kids, not, you know, working longer hours. So, so we really need to address some societal issues, but, you know, we can't wait for that to happen. We can't say, okay, well, let's just kind of throw in the towel because until all of these big issues, you know, we change our system of education and we change public policies, we, we can't do anything. Parents still can make individual choices, so, in terms of addressing some of the issues before they start, I would say, you know, when your child is an, is an infant and a toddler and a preschooler, that's where you have most control over your child's environment. So, maybe you want to turn off the TV and you want to turn off the computer screen. The most effective way to grow a child's brain, I think that there's so much pressure on parents to have you know, every child be an Einstein. So you see all this, these baby Einstein type products being marketed, um, that it's important for parents to know that a child's brain will be most stimulated through human touch, through human conversation, through interaction and play in natural settings, through developing curiosity and imagination. Turn the TV off. Don't bathe your kid in screen time and... All of these commercialized messages that really kind of remove them from the kinds of messages and communications that, and, and values that you want to impart on your yeah. child. Yeah. Especially turn the TV off during dinner time. Just create an environment where your child knows that they're loved and where you know, family time is valued. Don't imagine that a thousand extracurricular activities in, for young children are the way to, way to go. I think that there's so much pressure on parents. Mm-hmm. They feel like, wow, if my kid isn't even in music time on Mondays and soccer on Tuesdays and ballet on Wednesdays and piano on Thursdays, that they're going to somehow fall behind. Children need time to play. They need time in nature. They need calm time with their families they need time just to you know to read and reflect and i think we need to sort of not front load kids activities as heavily as we do when they're when they're when they're young now when a child is troubled and they are showing behaviors that are frightening they're cutting themselves they're bullying they are profoundly sad. They have explosive
0: think, meltdowns or they get really right, disruptive in the class. And,
1: right. I think the first thing we need to do is we need to consider the possibility that they are trying to communicate something important to us. Mm-hmm. That this is not just a misfiring brain, but that maybe that we can understand what it is that they are trying to say and what it is that they're experiencing. Having said that, we also need to kind of consider the possibility that maybe they're having an allergic reaction. We need to look at, at those kinds of issues as well. But we also really need to respect the fact that there is something that they're trying to tell us, that there's something that is gone awry for them.
0: And this is where the role of family therapy and counseling can, right. can be really important. And what are just some examples of the kinds of things that a kid might be communicating with their emotional problems, their behavioral disruption? I mean?
1: Well, you mentioned earlier that sometimes um, children become symptomatic when mm-hmm. in fact, the problem sort of resides in the family system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is you know this is very true. So you know the kind of the classic example is that, The parents are fighting and it's so painful for the child to observe the parents fighting and so the child almost tries to distract them or to let the parents know that they need them that they couldn't bear to lose one of them and so the child starts to act in ways that are disruptive and then suddenly the parents are training their attention on the child and the parents aren't fighting anymore because they're sort of working together to try and help mm, mm-hmm. their child. And so that, that's just one of many, many examples of how sometimes children act out when there are problems or issues that are, you know, part of a family dynamic that really, the problem doesn't live in the child that lives in the, in the family system. But, Family therapy has been around for many many decades. There are all kinds of systems of individual psychotherapy and play therapy that where there is a tremendous amount of research support. These are not just um, you know approaches that uh just been thrown together or are experimental. And so that's the irony. These are systems of treatment where the research does exist and where the research mm-hmm. is solid it's the the medicating approach, the claim that the child probably has a chemical imbalance, these are the arenas where the science is much weaker. So, so you know, certainly mm-hmm. um and, and I think that what's happened is that psychotherapy and family therapy have become adjuncts to medicating and that the primary function of family and individual therapy now is to encourage compliance to the medication regimen or Mm -hmm. to teach the the parents about the disease that the child has, rather than understanding that these are approaches that stand alone and have decades of research and practice to recommend and to support Mm -hmm.
0: them. Sharna, we don't have a lot of time left. I just wanted to ask you, what do you think would be needed in the culture, the society, uh, medical policy, government policy to kind of make a shift away from the current move into drugs for children who have behavioral, psychological, emotional problems and move more towards effective ways of helping kids and helping families that don't have the kind of harm associated with medication? What's really needed in larger um, larger policy, medical policy, government policy?
1: The first thing that we need is we need to remove the conflict of interest between, um, you know, drug company money and drug research. And so we need our Mm -hmm. government to fund research so that it is not muddied by the profit motive. So I think that that would go a long way towards the, the kinds of misconceptions that, that exist today. And I think that we need to have more sanctions for psychiatrists who do not inform their patients about side effects. And we need to be more aware that psychiatrists do not have the legal right to prescribe drugs off-label and bill Medicaid that this is an illegal practice. So we need to kind of enforce the laws that already exist, and we need to separate out research from drug company money. Mm.
0: And remind us the name of your latest book, and also if people want to contact you and find out more information about your work, how do they do that?
1: The title of the latest book is Drugging Our Children, How Profiteers Are Pushing Antipsychotics on Our Youngest and What We Can Do to Stop It. And if you want to get in touch with me, one way is to email me, and my email address is solfman, S-O-L-F-M-A-N, at pointpark.edu.
0: Sharna Ulfman, thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio.
1: It was such a pleasure. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Sharna Ulfman. She's a professor of developmental and clinical psychology at Point Park University in Pittsburgh and a psychologist in private practice. She's the editor of the Childhood in America book series, and she recently edited the new book, Drugging Our Children, How Profiteers Are Pushing Antipsychotics on Our Youngest and What We Can Do to Stop It. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is co-sponsored by Peer Run Support Communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Hosted by Will Hall, music producer is John Rice, with technical assistance from Jeremy Lantzman. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, including KBOO in Oregon, WXOJ and WBCR in Massachusetts, Alaska's KWMD, and WPRR in Michigan. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, to help get us broadcast on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net.